Mr. Chase is going to share the scripture with us. Romans 9, 19 through 24, I believe. Go ahead, Chase. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory amen thank you most gracious god lord we thank you for your word we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and father once again for so many weeks, you reveal yourself in a very uncommon way as we look at these passages and we see you in perfection. And Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us unlike ever before, that we, we see this as being beautiful and, and powerful and gracious and loving because that's who you are. And Lord God, I pray that the words I speak be not mine but be glorifying unto you, for it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. As we have gone through this section of Romans, in particular Romans 9, I've expressed to you oftentimes how it's extremely difficult because these passages show us God in a way that our minds have a difficult time understanding. And we have a difficult time finding the love of God in these passages. But I don't want to be a person that takes what I like about God and throws away what I don't like about God. And I think we have to be careful whenever we do that in our walk with Him. Because we all have those things that are attractive to us because we kind of fit in that group, right? And we have those things that aren't so attractive to us because we may not necessarily fit in to that group. I want to know the God of the Bible, and I hope you all do too. And I want to know every aspect there is to know about Him, accept that, love that, and worship Him, and glorify Him because of that. Not in spite of that. And I think that's what we run the risk of getting into whenever we look at these passages. Nor do I want to try to manipulate the words of Scripture so that they fit some preconceived idea that I might have. That's just as wrong. And it's a very popular way of looking at the Bible these days especially in today's world. We don't like what the Bible says, so what do we do? We do our best to try to manipulate, change, whatever to fit 
how we think it should be. That's what we do. Or yet, we fall back on the, oh, but it was translated incorrectly. That's, that's the best one. Because there's very few people in the common society that knows Kone Greek, right? It's just the reality of it. But that's always the back. Well, it wasn't translated correctly. So we're going to take it and twist it and mesh it and make it fit into what I want it to say. Because in essence, I want to kick God off His throne because I know more, I can make better decisions, and I can run this world a whole lot better than He can. That's ultimately what we say when we do that. Because we think we know more. And we think we can do it better than God can. I pray that my view of God is only found in the Bible. And not some figment of this idea that I have in my mind of who I want God to be. And I pray that you all have that same desire. Because if that's not the case, if that's not the case, we're going to be frighteningly disappointed at some point in time in the future. Because we're going to run up against the God that we don't even know, and He doesn't even look like this being that we've conjured up in our own minds. That's the danger and the risk that we run whenever we don't accept the God of the Bible. If something doesn't seem fair, or something doesn't seem just, it's our fault. It's on us. It's because we don't truly know what is fair and what is just and what is righteous. It's not God's, because as we said last week, and most of last week's message was devoted just to that. He is the author of fairness, of justice, of righteousness. If he doesn't add up to that, then that's our fault. That's because of the sin that we harbor. You've heard me many times from this pulpit talk about how much I cherish the sovereignty of God. It's one of the attributes of His that I absolutely love. And from that sovereignty, I take so much confidence in my relationship with Him. I have spoken to people at times of their greatest loss, at times when something happens in their lives that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And you would think that the sovereignty of God would be the last thing that they wanted to hear. But you would be surprised. There are so many that want to know the sovereignty of God. They want to know that He's in control, that He's working absolutely everything out for His glory, and for our well-being. And when we can rely on that, then the craziness of this world that we can't make sense of suddenly falls into place. There's comfort in that. There's comfort in that when there is no other comfort anywhere to be found on this earth. 
That's what I want when things are awful. When you feel like there just is no tomorrow. When something happens that just rocks your world to the core. I want to be able to trust that my God has this under control. That nothing's happening outside of His control or His ordination. I believe that the all-sovereign God of the Bible is exactly what we need during this time in this world and in our country. We need to know that He's got this because man does not. And we need to understand that. It's not going to get better, folks. Newsflash. It's not going to be fixed. Okay? It's not going to happen. We have had three centuries of Disneyland, television on the couch, and whatever other luxury we've got to enjoy throughout this country's very, very short history. These 250 years are a blip, okay? A a, a blip that is abnormal to the ways of the world. And to think that that's going to be sustained is rather naive. So we need a God that no matter what comes down this pike, no matter what happens to us, no matter what's thrown at us, He's got it, He's in control. And we can trust Him for that. So there is going to be a time when every one of us need to have assurance and to be able to count on the sovereignty of Almighty God. Verse 19. What will you say to me then? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So, Paul notes an objection. Why does he still find fault? So we have an objection that Paul anticipates from this person that's reading through everything that Paul has said. Now I want to take you back and I want you to look at 17 and 18 so that you can understand that objection. I'm not going to throw it up there. I'll read it to you. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. So Paul's painting Pharaoh as an example of how God acts. Specifically, acts on vessels of wrath prepared for destruction that we're going to see in a little bit. So he tells Pharaoh, I held you up. I lifted you up. I hardened you, and you continued to be hardened. And so the natural question is, why does God find any fault in Pharaoh? If God was below the surface causing Pharaoh to rise up and be hardened and do all this damage, why does he find fault in him? Because who can resist his will? It's a very apropos question. God hardened him so he could show his own mercy and power and his name be proclaimed on 
over all the earth. So that's the logical next question that we get right here. After all, it is God, and who can resist His will? We've seen that God's sovereign choice is present in believers as well as unbelievers that do evil. And we've watched that play out over the last month and a half or so. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Why? Because he could. He chose Jacob over Esau. Why? Because of his glory and for his desire to be glorified. Now we see it come to Pharaoh. And we see how it played out right before the exodus. So why is it right for God to do this? Why is it right for God to do this? To work behind the scenes to demonstrate and harden Pharaoh. And I strongly encourage you not to attempt to make these isolation-type moments. Paul's not giving us every scenario. This happens all the time, every day, okay? It's not just applicable to Pharaoh, and it's not just applicable to Jacob and Esau, and it's not just applicable to Isaac and Ishmael. This is how God works, okay? So don't try to explain it away and say, well, that was just Pharaoh in that one instance. No, it's the way that God works and deals with people. So why is it right for him to do that? We've got the question, why does he still find fault? Why is Pharaoh condemned when God's working below the surface and Pharaoh can't even resist his will? That's the $100,000 question. Now we're going to look at Paul's responses. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So here we have response number one that Paul gives us. Who are you, O man? He's not saying old man. Okay, That's not what's being said here. He's saying, who are you, mere man, mere mortal? Who do you think you are? He's sort of putting mankind in its place. He's saying, you are a mere man and you are answering back to God. And he's using the metaphor of a potter and clay and a molder and making clay vessels out of or making vessels out of clay being the molder and he says does the vessel that's been made does he have the right to ask the molder why did you make me this way how often do we do that right or better yet, we say, I'm a perfect vessel because God made me this way. That, that, that's even better, right? That's what we like to do. 
God made me whatever way I am, and so I am wonderful. But that's what the world believes, and that is nonsense. The vessels argue back at God every day, all the time. The argument here is that human beings, as smart as we like to think we are, we simply do not know enough to be able to push God off the throne and aspire to that position on our own. We have a very small view of reality, and that small view of reality is also incredibly tainted by our own sinfulness. So who are we as mere broken vessels to tell the maker you made me incorrectly you don't know what you were doing you did a pretty poor job God is the potter and we are the clay does he not have the right to make some Vessels for honorable use and some for dishonorable use out of the same lump of clay? We would ordinarily say absolutely. But there's just something in this that that bothers us, right? There's something in this that is painful for us to digest and get through. But this series of questions reminds me. Does it remind you of any other book of the Bible? Amen. This was God's response when Job was feeling sorry for himself. And he had every right to feel sorry for himself, right? I mean, of all people, it was Job. He lost every child that he's had. He lost his servants. He lost all of his his livestock. Everything that he had, he lost in a moment, in an instant. And so God's response to him. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is it, or who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you make it known to me. So he's putting Job on the spot. He's saying, You're a man, you want to whine, you want to cry, you want to act like you're doing, you, you could do a better job than I am. Will you be a man, you gird your loins up, because I'm going to question you, and then you're going to respond to my questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Oh, surely you know. Don't think that God's not sarcastic, right? Because we have it right here. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or stretched the line upon it. On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God sounded for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band? 
and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors. He doesn't stop there. He goes on for four chapters. I mean, he continues asking Job these questions just because Job was feeling a little sorry for himself, trying to understand why all this was happening to him. I'll quote chapter 40. We'll read this. And Job actually interjects in the interim here and says, Yeah, I'm not really doing what I should do. And then God comes back and answers Job out of the whirlwind again. Again, the same type of thing. Dress for action like a man. Gird up your loins. I'm going to question you, and you tell me the answers. Will you even put me in the wrong Will you tell me that I'm doing wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? You're saying I made a bad decision? Or that everything I ordained was wrong? Who are you, Job, to question who I am? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Can you do all the things I can do? God is asking. And then Job realizes what's going on. And those of you that know, he said, Not only have I heard your voice, I've heard it in the past, but now I see you. I see your righteousness. I see your goodness. I see your grandeur. And every decision that you make is perfect in every way. Back to Romans. Verses 22 and 23. What if, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which were prepared beforehand for glory? Verse 22 begins with what if. It's not a theoretical scenario. So don't think it's a theoretical scenario at all, or a hypothetical scenario. This is exactly what happened with Pharaoh. We just talked about Pharaoh, and this is exactly what happened. So this idea that, well, it's a possibility. No, it's not a possibility. It is a reality. It's just Paul's way of saying it. What if God? So it explains to us the nature of God. God desires to show His wrath. He desires to make known His power. And in so doing, He endures. He is long-suffering with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He's patient with them. By rights, He should destroy them immediately. But He does not. He endures them with much long-suffering. But we're going to see that he does this in order that verse 23, or in order to fulfill his purpose in verse 23. Verse 22 is foundational to verse 23. So we have his wrath, we have his power, and we have his patience, or it's even his grace found in verse 22. So verse 22, as I said, is a basis and foundation for verse 23. The reason he does, verse 22, is to make known the riches of his glory 
for the vessels of mercy for which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So he does this, okay, in order to get to this. This is the ultimate goal. This is why he does what he does in verse 22. Everything that he does with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction is to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand. God, in making known his wrath, his power, and his judgment in the vessels of wrath, reveals the richness of his glory in the vessels of mercy. When we can see that, it is then we can worship him completely for all that he is and for everything that he is. I want to read you a quote from Jonathan Edwards. It's a little lengthy. I'll try to go slow, but in, in his book, The Freedom of the Will, he does a magnificent job of being able to explain this perhaps better than any other commentator that I've ever dealt with. It is a proper and excellent thing for infinite glory to shine forth. And for the same reason, it is proper that the shining forth of God's glory should be complete. That is, that all parts of His glory should shine forth. That every beauty should be proportionately radiant. That the beholder may have a proper notion of God. It is not proper that one glory should be exceedingly manifested and another not at all. Thus it is necessary that God's awful majesty, His authority, and dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. Here we go. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed, so that the shining forth of God's glory would be very imperfect, both because these parts of divine glory would not shine forth as the others do, and also the glory of His goodness, love, and holiness would be faint without them. Nay, they could scarcely shine forth at all, If it were not right that God should decree and permit and punish sin, there could be no manifestation of God's holiness in hatred of sin or in showing any preference in His providence of of godliness before it. There would be no manifestation of God's grace or true goodness if there was no sin to be pardoned, no misery to be saved from how much happiness soever he bestowed his goodness would not be so much prized and admired and the sense of it not so great so evil is necessary in order to the highest happiness of the creature and to the completeness of that communication of god for which he made the world Because the creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of His love. And if the knowledge of Him be imperfect, the happiness 
of the creature must also be proportionately imperfect. So you see what Jonathan Edwards was explaining there. Without us being able to see and understand God's wrath and His judgment on evil and sin, we could not understand the beauty of His righteousness and justice. There must be a contrast. There has to be a contrast. It, is, it would be like us being colorblind to the beautiful colors of God's grace. We couldn't see them. We couldn't fully understand them. But because God, in painting His masterpiece, had to paint sin, had to show His wrath in vessels that He made from clay, so that those vessels of mercy that He made to glorify Him can understand who He is and how wonderful He is and how perfect He is in every way and glorify Him for that. If not for them, then we would not glorify Him the way that He should be glorified. So Paul's ultimate question is, is God less glorious because He ordains sin? and evil, and then judges and punishes that? No. His answer is an astounding no. God is more glorious because He does that. And we're able to see the beauty of God in that contrast that we have between righteousness and evil. Between God's holiness and man's unrighteousness it is in that contrast that he can be glorified for the perfect god that he is let us pray most gracious god we thank you for helping us traverse probably one of the most difficult passages in the entire scripture for us to understand you in a deeper better way and lord we do thank you for contrasts we are a mankind that is so quick to take things for granted, to, so quick to judge, so quick to think that we know best. But Lord, you have painted us a beautiful masterpiece with wonderful contrasting colors, colors that help us to see how wonderful the Maker really is, how perfect in every way you really are. Father God, help us to understand and accept and worship you for your divine sovereignty in every area and aspect of this life. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. John, you want to, everybody want to rise? John, you want to go back and hit that praise and worship?